Today we are blessed to have our Juan Jose community with us, especially since it is World Communion Sunday. That Sunday where we gather with all Christians all over the world and break bread together in our Holy Eucharist. It's a powerful, powerful symbol of the kingdom of God. And not only are we breaking bread at this table, but we are serving bread to those who are hungry, as we should. This World Communion Sunday is also known as Peacemaking Sunday, and they seem to go hand in hand, don't they? Caring for those who need and peace. As I thought about the text for today, I began to work my way through some of the more well-known text in the Old and New Testament as examples of how the Bible deals with issues of peace. This morning I would like to share with you from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant text, Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15. Jeremiah was a prophet whose job it was to boil forth with words of truth and justice, to speak truth to power. He wasn't well-liked, as you can imagine, And as he looked around the land of Israel, he saw this injustice between those who had wealth and the religious authorities and how they were in cahoots with each other to keep others out of the institutions. So he writes, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, Peace, peace when there is no peace. They acted shamefully. They committed abomination, yet they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. And as we move to the person of Christ. We are reminded in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, these words from Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. And then we turn around to Matthew 10, 34 through 39, where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And then the last text from Luke 19.41, as Jesus on his donkey on Palm Sunday enters into Jerusalem, it reads in Luke, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. This day on World 
Communion Peacemaking Sunday, I would like to talk about things that make for peace. For we as Christians are called to be peacemakers. When I was about 10 and my brother 13, we would visit my grandfather often in Atlanta. He had brought himself up from having no high school education to becoming a fairly high executive in a major food service corporation. He spent all of his days putting out fires and handling and managing conflicts. Often when he would come home, we could tell that he was exhausted, yet he still had time to play with us. But every now and then he would come home and we would ask, Granddaddy, what are we going to do tonight? And he said, well, actually tonight I just need a little peace and quiet. What he was saying, of course, is he wanted us to stay out of his hair, not to argue, not to tussle, not to create any conflict, not to cause any noise because he was really too tired to deal with it. That's the kind of peace we imagine we want, peace and quiet, a sort of illusionary perfect peace with no conflict and, and no confrontations. But the truth is that that kind of peace is found only when we are resting in peace after life and death. The truth is that in this world, that kind of peace and quiet only comes momentarily. While in fact, most of life, as I understand it at least, and I don't mean this to sound hopeless, but really as joy and challenge, most of life is about challenge and struggle and perseverance and persistence, all words about, about something really different than peace. All life, as I understand it, is about living in the polarities of things like time and space, right and wrong, or good and bad, or introversion or extroversion, or judgment and grace, or a million other polarities. And in the midst of those polarities, while we're in that continuum, that is tension between the two of them. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, maybe he wasn't talking about the kind of peace that my grandfather had asked for, peace and quiet, an absence of turmoil and conflict, but the kind of peace that comes when two opposing forces are at rest with each other, like a seesaw when the weight has been leveraged equally on both sides. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. It incorporates the organic whole of things, wellness of body and mind and spirit, yes, but also completeness of gifts and completeness of community. In the Hebrew understanding, shalom cannot happen if one person has peace and the community doesn't. Or the whole community but one has peace, but that one doesn't. For peace to happen, everyone needs to be in on it. This is maybe why Jesus wept when he rode into Jerusalem. He saw the unpeace and injustice before him, the greed that Jeremiah had seen 600 years before, and it broke him. The rich would always be rich, the poor always be poor, income equality would always keep expanding 
only the elite were given access to the temple and only those in power had access to the chief priest. It's not right. While it brought peace for a while, like the Pax Romana, it always came at the edge of power and intimidation and the threat of annihilation. This kind of peace always does. But it will not last. The arc of history bends toward justice, Martin Luther King said, and that kind of peace and quiet will not last. We see it in dysfunctional families all the time, which means our families. You learn to walk around on eggshells because you don't want to make anyone upset or get them angry, and so you keep and work toward a sort of fragile truce. Usually there's one person in the family who is the peacemaker who hates conflict so much that their stomach aches and their chests are tight. And so they run around in the midst of the confrontations and try to put out all the fires in the family and to make things right and to bring resolution to all the hurt feelings and to work toward harmony. And oftentimes, the more functional the peacemaker in the family the more you also find the black sheep in the family who runs around as their job to make sure that there is no harmony, peace, and perfection. And so you have those two opposing forces. Usually what happens in our families and institutions is that we get rid of the troublemakers while praising the peacemakers. I wonder if we shouldn't revisit that. It's obvious Jeremiah was a troublemaker. He couldn't stand by in the face of greed and injustice and racism and disease and hunger, and he could not do nothing for the sake of keeping the peace. And neither could Jesus when he looked around and saw the idolatry of family over faith, of security over spiritual freedom, He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, not peace but a sword. You know, Jesus hated sectarianism. You know what I mean by that, that that way that we board and close our doors and windows and cocoon ourselves in order to keep out the riffraff. He hated, I think, denominations who split simply for the name of purity and people who become more and more isolated in order to keep themselves safe from the rest of the world, even if it's in our families, especially if it's in our families, as that one place of security. Jesus says, that's not real peace. Jesus hated it because he knew that that kind of peace is the devil's lie. It's the utopian illusion. Without conflict, there is no peace. Freedom comes with conflict. And the conflict that Jesus brings, he says, is the sword of truth that cuts through all of our illusions of injustice or justice and our safety nets and exposes them for what they are, and prods us out of our own little safe harbors, 
out into the world to serve God where God is, just as Jesus did. That's why we crucified him. We crucified him not because he was kumbaya, Mr. Peacenik. We crucified him because he was a man of conflict and he called into question our conflicts. He upset the apple cart. And the truth is, I think that we would crucify him again for the same reason. The fact is that peace as Jesus holds us accountable to, is not about the absence of conflict. It is instead about the resolution and the redemption and the hope that we find when we let ourselves go into that conflict and own it and face up to it and then ask God for the peace in it. One of the smartest men I know was a therapist by the name of Ed Friedman. We learned about him in seminary, read all his books. Friedman studied about family systems and institutional systems. He understood that all the systems work pretty much the same way, that most systems work toward keeping homeostasis, that is balance, and that if one person gets out of balance, the whole system works overtime to bring that person back in. He said something I find remarkable. He wrote, that if, if you show me any system that is dysfunctional, that is not working the way it should working, show me any system and I will guarantee that they will have the same problem. And the problem is that there will be the leader, the leader of that family or that institution who is afraid of conflict, who seeks peace at any price, who at the expense of good boundaries, clear expectations, and consequences that matter, just wants things to be peaceful and quiet. It's called our comfort zone, that place of rest and comfort that we build for ourselves, that little cocoon. It's our comfort. Think about yours, your comfort zone. Maybe you hate to travel or fly. Maybe you hate to make new friends. Maybe you don't like to face the realities of racism or climate change or income inequality or social networks that don't work or maybe just our own family strife. Maybe you don't like to change anything in your life, not even the <clears throat> pew that you sit in. It's our comfort zone, and we often slide into it without even being aware of it. We'll die there. We'll die there. Because that kind of peace is deadly. It feels like a warm bath when we're in it, but it shrivels us up and turns us into a prune the longer we stay there. It's not shalom, because in that kind of peace, shalom gets lost, because it's about burying our head in the sands and covering ourselves over with some false something that we think protects us. 
seminary professor would ride the train every single day from Connecticut to New York City to teach his class, and he noticed a man sitting beside the window, and every day as they came to a particularly impoverished part of New York, the man would reach out and pull the blind down on the window, and as they passed, he would reach out and then pull the blind back up. So after a while of this, the professor asked the man, well, why do you do that? Why do you pull the blinds down when we go right through that same part of town? And the man said, I grew up in that town, and I struggled all my life to get out of it, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I do not want to go by that place every single day and see it for what it is. It hurts too much. What else can I do? And the professor said, well, maybe you could just not pull the blind down. That's peace, you see, because it holds us accountable to see the conflicts and the hurt and the pain and the suffering in our world, without which, according to Jesus, it's all a grand idolatry. But that's not all of it. The second part is our hands and our feet that step out of our comfort zones and go and, and, and let ourselves go out into the world where that hurt and suffering exists. It's that peace that cannot be disturbed or shaken, the kind of peace that is built on trust and hope and love and faith even in the face of threat and conflict and even violence. And next thing you know, if we do it, we might be peacemakers facing conflict and bringing resolution. It happens all the time. It even happens in church. A friend of mine named Agnes, who is a preacher friend, tells a story of a couple in her church in Atlanta who were seminary professors their children had just left home and they had lived their lives in a sort of separate pattern of isolation from each other and now that they became empty nesters they had to turn back to see what kind of marriage they had and it wasn't good so they went to see Agnes and asked her for help and she had prayer with them and then said you've made a vow together this is another opportunity and a challenge to work on your marriage and to be persistent <clears throat> and to claim God's faith in that <clears throat> but she also gave them the name of a psychotherapist after some long time Agnes said <clears throat> she saw them together and they seemed to be doing better even holding hands so she asked one of them later what happened was this therapist very helpful for you and the woman said, yes, yeah, she was helpful, but I got to tell you, the most helpful thing for us was coming to church Sunday after Sunday. And in that place where we have to stand up and reach our hand out and say, the peace of Christ be with you and with you, we would have to turn to each other and share that peace and the liturgical ritual of doing that week after week held us accountable to a much higher standard of what peace and relationship is all about. She said it was the peace of Christ that brought us back together. So on this peacemaking Sunday, let us 
step outside of our comfort zones and open our eyes to the world that is before us. And then let us also open ourselves up to the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. What else matters? Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.